0: Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Well it's great to be here this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at church. It's great to uh, be sharing with you this morning. We're starting a new series today and for the next few weeks called Insights. And we're going to be looking at some of the hidden gems that are found in the Bible in the lesser known and lesser read books of the Bible. And this morning we hope as we open the scriptures together that God is going to uh, speak to us through these books. So today we're going to be starting that with the book of Nahum. Now obviously you're all familiar with the book of Nahum, you know where it is in the Bible. And so um, for those of you who maybe have not read the book of Nahum, I'm going to give us a little bit of a background as to the book and uh, a little bit about who Nahum is. So he is only mentioned uh, in this book. He's a prophet of God and his message that uh, we're going to look at today comes in the form of of a prophetic vision. This book is only three chapters long, so uh, hopefully we can cover that in this 20 minutes that we've got. And it is a prophetic vision addressing the Assyrian Empire, and in particular, the capital city of that empire, Nineveh. And now, no, uh, this book doesn't actually mention any dates, but it's widely accepted uh, that it's, this prophecy happened at around 630 uh, BC. And uh, it is also given that Nahum began his public ministry uh, in the latter days of King Manasseh, who you can read about in 2 Kings 21 or 2 Chronicles, uh, and continued through the early days of King Josiah. And again, you can read about him in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles, if you so wish. During the time of King uh, Josiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were also prophesying. So hopefully that kind of gives you a bit of a synopsis as to what time we're looking at now the main emphasis of this book is all around the impending doom of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire a great thing to look at on a Sunday morning I reckon Uh, I won't be reading all of the book we'll be dipping in and out so if you want to turn and find Nahum hopefully by the end of my sermon you would have found that three chapters it's in the Old Testament and I'll let you find that for yourselves So about 100 years before Nahum was uh, written, Nineveh had another visitor come to tell them to repent, to turn from their wicked ways and follow Yahweh, follow the Lord. This person was who? Jonah, brilliant, great, excellent. He'd gone pretty reluctantly to Nineveh via a fish to call them to repent It's fair to say that Jonah disliked the Ninevites. He was pretty angry at God for giving them a chance to even think about repentance. That's because the Assyrians were a brutal empire. They were enemies of God's nation, Israel, and had practiced some of the most evil and cruel and violent methods that were known to mankind. However, Jonah came and they uh, amazingly Listen to what he'd got to say. It's a bit like this, might be a bit controversial, but I'm gonna say anyway. It's a bit like Jonah going to the Red Square, to Red Square now in Moscow and preaching for Russia to repent. The whole city repented, and God relented from destroying them. And you can read about that in Jonah chapter three. God spared them. But unfortunately, a few years later, they'd gone back to their old evil ways, and in fact. As we see in Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, they had got even more evil. It says this Woe to the city of blood, this is talking about Nineveh, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. This refusal to uh, maintain God's ways was kind of the final straw. And Nahum was given this prophetic vision to tell the Assyrians about what was going to play out in the next few years to their empire. So that's the backdrop to the book. Hopefully you've uh, uh, you kind of got a sense of where we're heading. And today I want to take each chapter at a time and just give a couple of things that I think we can take from this book in 2022. And my invitation to you is to read this book again after this morning and see what God might be wanting to say to you today. So firstly, we're going to look at chapter one, looking at God of justice. Secondly, in chapter two, we're going to look at God of the impossible. And thirdly, in chapter three, God of the second and more chance or chances. So firstly, God of justice. Over the last few years, I have to say that I've read and been more aware of the brokenness of the world that we live in right now. COVID, wars, climate change, shootings, child abuse, racism, corruption of people in power that are there to, 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 to put in places of trust failing their own people and that is just in the last few months let alone the last few years and obviously over the last few weeks many of us have been seeing and reading the horrendous things that are going on in Ukraine watching this unlawful and barbaric events does make you wonder and kind of has me in tears and weeping and praying desperately to God asking God to intervene and you might be asking the same questions that I have where are you in all of this God where are you in all of this and what are you going to do about it please do something will this ever get better maybe you feel the weight and the heaviness of what's going on in the ukraine or, or elsewhere well rewind back to name's day and him and judah were watching the assyrian empire and the people of nineveh for over a century since they repented under Jonah, do exactly the same thing. It had heard about the devastation that had happened before Jonah, all of the stuff that they'd done, and now they were being even more brutal and aggressive towards anyone and everyone. And Nineveh was the most powerful city in the world. The Assyrian uh, military was more powerful than any other military. It had conquered most of the known world at that time, including Israel's capital in 722 BC. Two decades later, it is Judah's turn to be invaded until a last minute miracle through the prayers and the prophet Uzziah and King Hezekiah stopped it from happening. So here we have Nahum and the people of Judah waiting and watching, seeing all this evil unfold and they've had enough. They're asking probably the same questions that we're asking today. Where are you, God? What are you going to do about this? So, Nahum chapter 1, he starts to, to unload this prophecy to uh, Nineveh and the Assyrians. So here we go, from verse 2, we're going to read for a little bit down to verse 8. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. By the way, this, this first bit pulls no punches. Okay? The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an everlasting flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes in the realm of darkness whew, that's pretty pretty hard going. Nahum starts by prophesying about all that they can see at this moment, all that they're witnessing right now, and how it is about to change. That the Lord has seen what is going on in Nineveh and with the Assyrian Empire, and he's going to do something about it. God's patience with Nineveh is not passivity. Paci- paci- Sorry, I can't say that word. You know what I mean. Look, back at, the word, look at back at the verses. It says that God is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The people of Judah are about to witness God's patience coming to an end. One commentator says this, that Nahum uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, meaning the Lord, because these events... Is about to are about to teach Israel the true character of God. That he is love, but that doesn't mean tolerance, because he's also just. Nahum 1-2 literally talks about the Lord keeping in reserve his wrath against his enemies. God storing up this wrath until the day of judgment. And I think this leaves us with a bit of a tricky question that we probably will come back to during this series. Is this really what we think God is like? A vengeful, angry, wrathful God? It's a bit of a long-standing question that is banded around a lot towards Christians that many people have had. How can a loving God do what appears in this book of Nahum to supposedly the people he loves in Nineveh? It's simple. The people of Nineveh have got a choice. They can, as they did when Jonah visited and hear the warning, repent, turn wholeheartedly away from their ways and follow Yahweh in all that they say, do and act. Or they can remain in their ways that they have now. God has no pleasure from destroying sinful cities. Nahum is hoping that this warning will give the Ninevites a a bit of a kick up the bum if you like and get them into action to deal with their sin. But let's be honest, when we hear about what the Assyrians did when we see what is happening right now in our world we wonder why God spares people, maybe. Why does God give them grace and a chance to repent because of what they've done? Why doesn't he just end it all now? given that they've already had a visit from Jonah and he's told them this message already, you kind of think that they'd listen and embrace God's way. But you can also see why Judah are totally fed up with uh, with the Assyrians and the people of Nineveh. Now, while we might not be like the Assyrians or involved in many of the other things that we see happening in the world right now, we do need to consider what this is saying to us. We need to consider the amount of times maybe that we have done the exact same thing. How many times have we heard God's message to us? The chance maybe to turn away from what we know is not God's best for us. In our living, our thinking, our acting and walk with God. Our rebellion, what the Bible calls sin, is inside each of us. It seeps into our heart, our mind and our soul and causes us to embrace God's forgiveness to then potentially go back to our old sinful ways. This is a hard message to hear, I know. It's not an easy message, but it is one that the book of Nahum serves as an example for all of us. To, to not take evil injustice lightly, because one day God will bring his sovereign justice to this world. Paul Tripp, a Bible commentator, says this, about this god is holy he's angry with sin it's hard for us to understand that the anger of god against sin really is the hope of the universe you would not want to live in a world where the one in charge of the world did not care about evil you could argue that it's the anger of god with evil that drove jesus to the cross because he would not let evil win You should be heartened that God is angry with sin because his anger with sin is a part of the zeal to deliver us from the sin by the mercy of our Savior. When Jesus returns, God will judge the nations. He will judge their actions. He will see how people have treated each other, how they've loved each other, fed each other, clothed each other, supported each other, loved their neighbors treated widows children and the elderly the stranger the foreigner and the refugee god will bring his mercy his love grace and justice to this world the justice that he needs to bring and for judah and for us now there is comfort in this see verse seven it's a bit of a hidden gem if you're just reading all the other stuff but it says this the lord is good a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So even when we mess up, even when we walk our own ways and we're doing things that are not God's best for us, God is still good. He's still a refuge for us in times of trouble. He cares for us if we put our trust in him. All those times that we fail to live God's best for us, all that rebellion is met on the cross. The wrath of God was put onto Jesus at the cross, so that if we choose to follow him, if we repent and say sorry for the ways that we've lived, we can have that restored relationship with our Father God. God won't forsake you. There will be a day when all this mess and pain and suffering and sin is gone and is no more. And we will live in God's righteousness and peace. So that's chapter one. Chapter two, God of the impossible. So Nahum has started to prophesy now towards Assyria and Nineveh in particular. And I think that Nahum and the Judeans were wondering how God was actually going to accomplish this. And so in chapter two, we start to see the prophecy of how God is actually going to do this. Now, as I said earlier, Nineveh was enjoying the golden age. like Their people had never had it so good. They'd conquered Egypt. They were the largest empire in the land. Therefore, as we start to read this uh, prophecy in chapter 2, it looks absolutely ridiculous to the people of Judah. So I imagine when the people of Nineveh read it, they were proper belly laughing at God. How is this going to happen? Have you seen where we are and what we are? Ever had the same thing? Ever had a prophecy given to you? Ever given someone a prophecy and they've just maybe shrugged it off or laughed or said, That is ridiculous. That is never going to happen in a month of Sundays. I've never known what that phrase means, by the way, but there we go. Uh, That's a different thing. Uh, Or have you ever prayed a prayer which seems, to be frank, completely impossible? You're praying it, and as you're praying it, you're like, why am I praying this? This is ridiculous. This is never going to happen. Well, my friends, God is the God of the impossible. He wants to amaze each and every single one of us with his great power, his great love and his great mercy. The Lord loves to do the impossible. Remember, Noah got told to build the ark. Everyone laughed at him. Abraham was promised a son despite being in his 90s. He questioned and scoffed. Moses was told he was going to set the Israelites free of slavery. He boldly went to Pharaoh. It seemed pretty impossible, let's face it, but God did it. The Assyrian Empire seemed so invincible that the fall of the capital seemed impossible. Maybe like the story of Jericho where they went round seven times, or the story of Gideon where his army was so small it looked impossible that he was going to win. God has proven and does prove time and time again that he can defeat the biggest armies. In Nahum 2, 1-2, we read, An attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard your fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. Again, laughable. But sure enough, when the king of Assyria died, the empire was plunged into a civil war. A man with a name that I cannot pronounce (laughs) took advantage of this and was crowned as a rival king to the city of Babylon. I'm not even going to try it. Uh, (laughs) Then we see something a bit more unusual in Nahum 2, verses 3 to 4, where he prophesies that the army will destroy Nineveh and will be distressed in scarlet and have red shields. Sure enough, as odd as this sounds, the new Babylon army decided it was going to fight in scarlet so that the enemy wouldn't be able to see its wounds. God is not only the God of the impossible, But he also wants you to know deep in your heart that it's him behind all of these small elements. He wants you to know that he is behind it and for you. So then we see in verses 5 to 8 that Nahum predicts and prophesies that the, the city of Nineveh will be captured. Again, a ridiculous thing to think about when they're the biggest army and empire in the world. But sure enough, the rivers of Nineveh wash away the city walls. We then see Nahum prophesy that it's going to take several days for the city to be plundered of all of its uh, silver and gold. And history tells us that this happened. That they carried off the vast amounts of this stuff, of the city and the temple and turned it into a ruined heap. And finally in verses 11 to 13, Nahum predicts and prophesies that the complete destruction of Nineveh. Now, regime change, yeah maybe I can see that. Plundered probably if they're going to have a regime change but the entire destruction of this vast city is probably the most unthinkable thing. But the Babylonians were so determined to wipe away any trace of the city of Nineveh that they carried all of its rubble off to build cities elsewhere. And today you can, you can go to, well maybe not, but it's near, basically Nineveh is near uh, the city of Mosul in Iraq And if you go there, there is very little trace that this great city existed. The way in which Nineveh fell is very sudden. And even though God had declared this was going to happen through Nahum, it probably took everyone a little bit by surprise. Nahum prophesied terrible judgment, but so did Jonah 100 years earlier. The Lord is trying to give these stark warnings because he wants Nineveh to repent. He wants them to come to know him. He wants them to turn from their ways and follow him. And he is serious when he says that he has set a day of judgment for the world. They could have experienced God's protection as I read out in chapter one, verse seven, but they laughed at, the th- at, the, at this, uh, this prospect. God is the God of the impossible. Last week we celebrated Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the events that changed history forever, the forgiveness of sin, the victory over death and the restored relationship with God that all of us can experience is the greatest thing to have ever happened in history. And this morning I want to ask you, have you chosen Jesus? Have you accepted this invitation to a restored relationship with God? If not, then in a while, I'm going to give you the chance to do that. But for the rest of us, what about this impossible stuff? Do we actually believe that God can do impossible things? What about in your life? What's the impossible thing that you're praying about right now? What about in your friends or family? What are you praying for the impossible to happen? Because God is the God of the impossible. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within him. That is a summing up of God being able to do more than we can ever imagine. God can do the impossible. Chapter 3, third and finally, God of the second and more chance. Chapter 3 describes in what some might say in fairly graphic detail the result of the city's downfall and for the empire, empire as a whole. Their violence has sown seeds of their own destruction and so Assyria will fall. The chapter ends with this picture of the king being fatally wounded and nobody comes to help him. Instead, they just sing and celebrate his, his demise and destruction. And as I said earlier, God does not enjoy destroying cities. But this city has a gaping wound. And there's a couple of things that I want to pull out of chapter 3 as we come to land. Firstly, God is against aggressive behavior. Verses 1 to 3. Assyria was an aggressive empire. This is why Nineveh was called the city of blood. The picture that Nahum speaks of is one that they are happy to be at war with every other nation. Anytime there's a war, uh, as we're seeing right now, there is a cost to human life. And we need to take stock of this warning. Whilst we're not like the Assyrians, we can all fall into the trap of aggression in our words and actions. Secondly... God, in verse 1, God is against deceitful behaviour. Now, years ago, and it is years ago before I share this story, I uh, love pick-a-mix. Anyone else love pick-a-mix? There's a shop near me called Wilco's, Wilkinson's, and uh, they do pick-a-mix. And And the good thing about pick-a-mix in Wilkinson's is you get to weight yourself. So um, the little thing comes out. And and so when you're a teenager, you think, this is great, because I can weight myself and kind of hold it over the weight thing, so it's not as heavy... As, uh, as it should be. Yeah, I know, I know. I've repented, it's okay. Me and God are good. So I went to the till with my pick-a-mix, a lot weightier than the price said on the ticket. And the cashier clearly caught on to what I was doing and they have a little weight thing next to them. And so she just went, oh, just, just check the weight on that. It was about a pound less And in the 90s, that was quite a lot, by the way. Um, And so I was caught out for my deceitful behaviour. I've repented, as I said. But we need to be aware about what we're reading, what we're reposting, saying and and our actions, dodging tax, stealing like me or trying to, not adding things to the bag at the self-checkout without scanning it or lying to people as an avoidance from the truth. Nineveh was a city of blood and lies. It was a deceitful place. And all of us as individuals need to examine our own hearts so that we can speak the truth and not act in lies. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, We need to put off our old self, which is being corrupted with deceitful desires, to be made new by the attitudes in our minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Two more. God is against shameful behaviour. Uh, One commentator likens Nineveh to a prostitute selling her wares to anyone who can be enticed and brought her influence. She lusted after the wealth of other nations and she used any method that she could to seduce an entire people, including witchcraft and the occult. This exploited people for selfish gain. It was inhumane and shameful and the Lord intends to show Nineveh what it's really like. The reality is that God sees all that we do, hears all that we say, and sees our thoughts. This isn't to creep us out, but it's actually the best thing because we can bring those things into the light and ask for God's forgiveness for those times where we have not acted in an honouring way of what God wants for us. Fourth and finally, God is against arrogant behaviour, verses 8 to 11. It may be said that Nineveh and Assyrians might become a little arrogant. Uh, A nation who thought they were untouchable, undefeatable. But Nahum is giving them a stark warning that that is not the case. It speaks and addresses the tragedy of violent oppression and human suffering in history. Human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want. And we still see that now. Egypt, Rome, Persia, Greece, Babylon, the Third Reich. Stalin's Soviet Union, Mao's China, atrocities in Cambodia, Uganda, Sierra Leone and the UK is not innocent in this either. God is against this whether you're in Nineveh, Moscow, Rome or London. It applies to each of us. Do we act with a, a level of self-sufficiency, boasting of our latest tech, our new car, or our pay rise? God promises to bring down the proud and arrogant and lift up the humble. God is grieved. He cares deeply about this stuff. He cares about the death of innocent people, the mistreatment of people. And he cares about what our attitudes and behaviors are like towards all of this. So just to come into land, going back to verse 19, talking of this king that was wounded. King Jesus was wounded. He was mocked. No one came to his help and aid. But the difference is, the king in Nahum was fatally wounded forever. But our king Jesus was not. He defeated death and sin and rose from the dead. And this changes everything for each of us. We have a saviour that did that for us so that we can bring all of the junk that we have And put it at the cross and ask for forgiveness. And God is true to his word. We're forgiven when we put our trust in Jesus. We have a God who sent his son to to, to restore this broken relationship between us. God is the restorer. God is the God of justice. And today he wants to restore you. Maybe for the first time he's inviting you into a relationship with him. Or maybe it's some of those things that I've just mentioned and we know that what, how we're living or what we're saying or what we're doing is not God's best for us. And he's inviting us right now to exchange those things for his grace, his forgiveness, and that we can live in peace in our hearts knowing that God loves us and forgives us. Nahum 1.15 says, Look there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news Who proclaims peace. Jesus is the one who brings us good news and proclaims peace. When we trust in Jesus, we can, as Nahum 1-7 says, know that the Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. If we are able, let's stand together and let's pray. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.